Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, We also have a guest, Dominic Lindley, who's Director of Policy at the New City Agenda. And we are joined down the line from Brussels by Jim Brunsden, our correspondent there, and from New York by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Today, we'll be looking at PPI, the UK's payment protection insurance scandal. Secondly, a look at Goldman Sachs as it trims down its partner numbers. And finally, Eurofi, how is a private sector organisation making money out of European policymakers. First, though, to PPI. And Nick, it's back in the news again. The deadline passed a few weeks ago for claiming against missold PPI, and the banks have had a bit of a shock. Yeah, that's right. This scandal has, of course, been rumbling on for years, and the Financial Conduct Authority set a deadline of the end of August for people to make claims for compensation. The banks had actually been pushing for this deadline because they wanted to draw a line under the whole scandal, but the end has come with a real sting in the tail, mainly because the number of last-minute complaints was just far higher than anyone had predicted. So, so far, over the last week or so, we've had Lloyd's, Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays, CYBG, and the Cooperative Bank all say they're going to have to put extra money aside, and there is speculation that others might have to join them soon, including potentially HSPC. And this has taken the aggregate tally of compensation and other costs associated with PPI to beyond £50 billion. That's incredible, isn't it? How does that figure in the tally of scandals in the history of banking? It is an enormous figure. When banks first started paying compensation for PPI eight years ago, they were worried that it might be as high as £4.5 And we're now past 50. So, I mean, that not only dwarfs any other UK scandals, it's 10 times higher than the next British one. It also puts it in the big leagues internationally. It's more than US banks had to pay for abusing their mortgage customers during the financial crisis. Um, and pretty much the only biggest scandal was the mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities. This is the scandal that emanated from the pre-crisis years and obviously was a core part of the crisis unravelling. But it's not money that, of course, went to consumers in the same way as PPI payments are going to. Yes, that's true. Although banks obviously have not been best pleased about having to pay out so much over the last eight years, some people are grateful about the potential bump to the economy that the PPI payouts have had by transferring chunks of a few thousand pounds each to millions of customers who then go out and buy holidays and cars and help to protect the economy at a time when it was in danger of slipping into a double-dip recession around 2011. Although the latest complaints um, and that last-minute rush is not likely to have as big an impact, partly because... Although the volume is very high of claims going in towards the banks, much of the costs are just administrative and a smaller percentage of the actual claims are likely to lead to compensation this time because most people who actually had been missold had claimed earlier on. A final thought then on what the impact on the banks has been. As you said, five banks over the past few days have come out with additional provisions that they're setting aside to cover this last minute flurry of claims. 
certainly in one case, CYBG, the share price plummeted on the back of this. What about the other banks? Have they been also hit? Yeah, so CYBG, who are the owner of the Clydesdale Bank, Yorkshire Bank, and also Virgin Money, they're the most badly affected, partly because they are smaller than the likes of RBS and Lloyds. So although their provisions were smaller, they've had to put aside an extra between 300 million and 450 million compared to more than a billion at Lloyds and Barclays. But relatively, it's a larger exposure considering the size of their book overall. It uses up most of the surplus capital that they were hoping to use on a new dividend later this year. So yeah, their shares dropped a fifth when the news was announced last week, and it's only picked up a little bit since. Lloyd's, RBS and Barclays, who are the other publicly listed banks who've put aside money, their share price was insulated somewhat because of wider market news. There's been some better than expected economic data and government bond yields have been rising, which is good news for banks. But that doesn't mean that their actual businesses aren't affected by it. Again, they've only provided estimates so far of how much money they're going to have to put aside. But in the worst case scenarios, it would wipe out a third of annual profits at RBS and a quarter of annual profits at Lloyd's which has also had to suspend its share buyback programme for the rest of the year. And there's been some concern about Lloyd's dividend. They have suspended their share buyback programme for the rest of the year. That should be enough to protect their ordinary dividend policy. But it does mean that the overall return that's likely to go to shareholders is going to be lower than some people have been hoping. Well, I suppose bad as this news is for the banks, there is finally a line drawn under it. Thanks, Nick. Well, let's now get another perspective on the PPI scandal. I'm joined by Dominic Lindley, who's Director of Policy at the financial services think tank New City Agenda. Dominic, thanks very much for coming in. As we heard from Nick, this has been a pretty massive scandal. Particularly, I suppose, shocking is this last-minute jump in provisioning costs and how it seems to have taken the banks by surprise. Why have they been shocked by this, do you think? Well, I think over many years, the banks have consistently underestimated the extent of their past misconduct. Of course, Lloyd started off in 2011 with $3 billion of cost for the PPI scandal, and they're now up to almost $22 billion. So they've had to increase their provisions many times. But I think many were caught off guard by the last minute increase in the number of complaints. There was a big spike in the number of complaints in the last two months. And it's clear that some banks received more complaints in the last two months than they do in an average year. And this was obviously partly down to there having been this deadline set and the fact that the claims management companies who processed most of the claims had a big campaign to get people to claim. Yes, because the deadline was there, consumers had to get it in by a certain time. And of course, the strong incentives for the claims management companies were to find as many people as possible and help them submit PPI complaints. Now, that's not unreasonable because, of course, when the banks sold PPI, many of them didn't even tell the customers they were buying it. So you just rung up, asked for a personal loan, and you were told that's £180 a month fully protected. And if you said, yes, that's fine, then you've just bought PPI and you probably wouldn't even know about it. The clue being in the words fully protected, but unless you were sharp, you wouldn't have realised. This has cost the industry £50 billion or more than that. Do you think the sector has learned a lesson from this? Well, I think generally when banks are accused of misconduct, you know, they follow three tactics. It's delay, deny and deflect. So if you look at the delay on the PPI scandal, they first challenged the regulator in court. Then they took years to write to consumers, which, of course, delayed the ultimate payout to people and increased the cost because consumers were paying interest on that PPI premiums over the years. And, of course, the ultimate compensation was larger. Then they kind of deny, you know, Lloyd's, the previous 
Chief Executive Eric Daniels said that when it came to PPI, they were on the side of the angels. You know, they hadn't done anything wrong. It was all the regulator changing the rules on them. Uh, you know, that's just fundamentally disingenuous. But that attitude continued at Lloyd's. So instead of accepting complaints and dealing with them, they rejected legitimate complaints and then had to reprocess them, costing shareholders over a billion pounds. And finally, we've seen the deflection where we've seen banks saying in the media that people trying to complain about PPI are fraudsters. And, you know, that's, I think, the general tactic that banks will go through. But there is a really important lesson for shareholders here, which is that financial firms generally really underestimate their liability for past misconduct and that accounting provisions don't really provide any sort of reasonable basis for judging the total potential cost of scandals. Is there a lesson as well for boards and regulators, and one that may or may not have been learned, that a product like PPI, which was from the start, or certainly for many years, highly, highly profitable, generating outsized proportion of profits for the banks, should ring alarm bells. And responsible directors and certainly effective regulators should catch this before it spirals out of control. Yes, you'd like to hope that would be the case in the future, because PPI generated around a third of retail banking profits prior to the financial crisis. But no one, either within the banks or the shareholders, sought to question that as an indication that actually lots of consumers were buying it when it was inappropriate and the product itself was very expensive. I mean, certainly regulators now should have a better idea about where the banks are making their money. And the kind of near-term threat comes probably not from mis-selling scandals, but from things like reforms to overdraft pricing. So from next year, banks will be stopped from charging really excessive fees for unarranged overdrafts. That's going to probably cost them a few hundred million pounds. And then future threats come from if they're prevented from the other part of the banking business model is exploiting inert customers. So taking those customers that have been with them for two or three years and putting them in really poorly paying savings accounts and then hoping they don't notice. And of course, any threat to that business model, again, would cost the banks money. And that threat could come from regulators or it could come from technological innovations like open banking. Yeah. So despite the heinous scandal here, it sounds like you're slightly more optimistic about ways having been changed, albeit under duress. I think you'll still see hundreds of millions of pounds of address, but it'll be hundreds of millions rather than what you've seen in PPI, which is billions of pounds every single year for the past seven or eight years. But the claims management companies are out there now. They employ thousands of people. They're always looking for the next big scandal. So, you know, anything which has big potential redress for consumers and lots of people affected. I mean, at the moment, they're turning their attention to things like payday loans. They'll probably turn their attention to final salary pension transfers if there's a decline in the stock market. But those companies are out there now and they're always looking for the next big scandal. And so that really changes the assumptions that shareholders and banks need to make. Because pretty much before, they could assume that people wouldn't complain. Whereas now, either through sharing it on the internet, sites like Martin Lewis and Witch, or through claims management companies, people are much more likely to complain about past misconduct. And again, the banks haven't got very good defences. So if you take packaged bank accounts, which you know cost people 15 or £20 pounds a month, there's probably a lot of outstanding complaints about those still to be processed. And really, some of the bank's defences against those complaints are pretty weak. So I think I saw one where the bank said that this person had bought a package bank account and they must have consented to it, but the bank had absolutely no record of when it was sold or how or any record of the customer actually consenting to being sold the package bank account. But of course, the bank's defence is, oh, they obviously consented to it. So there's still a lot of you know past misconduct. And I think given past practice, the banks are not going to volunteer to give the money back, even though it would have been much better for shareholders if the banks had said in 2011, 2012, we're going to write to every single person who had PPI, we're going to automatically compensate people. Then the cost 
still would have been in the billions, but it would have been at least you know half of what they've ended up paying over time. A lesson that they'll hopefully heed. Thank you very much, Dominic. Well, let's take a look now at Goldman Sachs. Some quite interesting developments over the past week or so. And it's a year, of course, since David Solomon, the chief executive there, took over. We're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor down the line from New York. Laura, welcome. Maybe first, just to recap on some of the management changes that David Solomon has put in place. A few senior changes. Just run us through who has moved where and maybe a little bit on why. So the biggest recent change we've seen is that Marty Chavez, who was previously co-head of the securities division and was also a former CFO, the bank's announced he's leaving. He's going to be replaced in his co-head of the securities division role by Mark Nachman. Mark was formerly co-head of investment banking, so it's a bit of a change in the securities leadership from what some might see as an unlikely quarter. But while Nachman does come from the investment banking world, he worked mainly in the financing group there. That's the area of investment banking which is most closely linked to securities. So in that sense, it's not as much of a wild card as if, say, an M&A banker had been put in co-head of the securities division. The other theme you've been writing about, Laura, is the attitude to partners. Now, there's a kind of rank within Goldman, the kind of top rank of employees, which is a hangover really from Goldman's days when it was genuinely a partnership organization rather than a listed bank. But the number of partners has increased substantially over the decades since the bank listed. And it has become arguably unwieldy. Clearly, David Solomon wants to reduce that number. The number of new partners is a kind of long time low, as declared, I think, earlier this year. And as you were writing in your piece, there seems to be an effort to weed out long-serving partners, certainly ones who are seen perhaps to be too long in the tooth. So on the broader partnership front, what they're doing is trying to really bring the partnership back to its very elite status. So executives I've spoken to have said that there has been some creep in the partnership ranks over the last few years. That basically, they want the partnership ranks to be only people who are really demonstrating their worth to the firm at the moment. It's grown to about 450 people. I've heard numbers of kind of 400, 410. That's what they would ideally like it to be. So what's happening is some partners are being asked if they might maybe consider leaving. Typically, when partners are asked that, that's kind of the end of their career at Goldman Sachs. So we do expect to see a handful of other people departing later this year. It'll continue into the start of next year. And finally, what does this tell us more broadly about David Solomon's approach to running Goldman Sachs? Are there other changes that we're likely to see? I guess in some ways, David has been doing a reform program since he took over as CEO. The partnership, what he's trying to do there is, as well as cutting down the numbers, he's trying to reshape it so that it more accurately reflects the Goldman Sachs of the future rather than what it's come from. Reading between the lines there, what we can see is even the last round of people who were elevated to the partnerships, we saw there were more people from compliance, from legal, from places that you wouldn't traditionally have been getting partners from. As we see Goldman push more into consumer banking, as we see them push more into the mass affluent wealth management, we can expect those divisions to also be putting forward partners. Similarly, Goldman's trying to get into cash management, and we would expect that they're going to need at least one or two cash management partners. So that all feeds into the strategy. Traditionally, the partnership has been dominated by securities and by investment banking, and we can expect to see a much broader spread. They're also keen that it's more diverse in terms of the ethnicity and also in terms of gender. So I think there has been a perception Goldman Sachs' partnership is largely white men of a certain age, and that's something that we expect to see changing. And David Solomon has made diversity one of the big planks of his first year in charge, and we would expect to see the bank continue to make progress on that. 
Many thanks, Laura. We'll keep a close eye on Goldman as the months progress. So let's turn to our last subject of the day and a look at Eurofee. We're joined now by Jim Brunsden, our correspondent in Brussels. And Jim, you wrote a very interesting big read on this with your colleague Alex Barker, the outgoing bureau chief there, about what Eurofee is and how it operates. For those who don't know, it's a big private sector organisation that organises conferences, is supposedly a think tank, although it doesn't produce that much in the way of analysis and publications. But it does make quite a lot of money, albeit technically a not-for-profit, I think. And it has enviable access, really, to all the top European policymakers. Jim, you're sitting, I think, in the European Commission right now. And those commissioners, and of course, a new set of commissioners being announced as we speak, but access to those kinds of people is pretty important for the financial services sector. And Eurofee is crucial to that. Tell us what you revealed in your big read. Yeah, exactly. That access is vital for the financial services industry. Because one thing to point out is that so much of the regulation of the financial sector in Europe is done at EU level, especially since the 2008 crash and the whole wave of re-regulation that was done after that in bank capital requirements, bank resolvability, trying to shed light on previously opaque trading platforms and so on. What the article was really trying to do was just show Eurofee for what it really is. Because speaking to policymakers in Brussels, you had the impression that no one had really thought about what it actually is, which is that it's a membership organization for around 60 of the world's most powerful financial services companies. And they organize these events twice a year and invite a lot of EU policymakers to come. And I think that's something which makes Eurofee very interesting, this depth of participation by EU officials, by senior EU policymakers, who don't just go there, but they take part in panels. They stay for a lot of individual meetings with financial services companies. For example, at a Eurofee conference in Vienna last year, over half of the panels were chaired by EU regulators, senior EU policymakers of one kind or another. For example, ECB executive board members, just to give one example. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And it's evolved over time, hasn't it? Because I remember, as you pointed out in your piece, the FT actually used to be a media partner for the conferences that Eurofee put on. This was going back nearly a decade. And at that time, it didn't... I mean, I personally took part in some of these conferences and moderated events and so on. Although there were you know, a lot of European officials taking part, they weren't necessarily quite so enmeshed in the organisation at that point. You know, a lot of the moderation of panels, for example, was done by journalists who were invited to participate. And it didn't feel quite so cosy. Now, as you pointed out in the piece, it does feel far more as if... The EU sees it as a kind of arm of itself. And yet, as you say, it's a private sector, financial services funded organisation. Yeah, that's a very good way of describing it. Again, just to give an example, I remember when I was in Vienna last year at the time of the European conference, I went to a press conference given by the Austrian finance minister. And this is an important point. It's that European conferences always take place in the same city, in the same week, as actual meetings of EU finance ministers and central bank governors organized by the country holding the EU's rotating presidency. And so that way, there are a lot of policymakers in the city who basically can flip between the two events, the actual EU meetings and the Eurofee conference. In this press conference organized by the Austrian finance minister, at the time Hartwig Lerger, I remember him saying, well, 
We've had a very good series of meetings, a very good event in Vienna this week. It began with the Eurofee, then it was the Eurogroup, so the meeting of Eurozone finance ministers, and then the ECOFIN, so the meeting of EU finance ministers. So he saw the Eurofee explicitly as part of the whole package. The, the difference is, if you're a journalist, for example, you can accredit for the EU meetings, so you can see ministers there and commissioners. The minute those officials or politicians walk across the road into the hotel where the Eurofee conference is happening, you can't follow them. And if you try to, even if they've invited you, you'll be thrown out. Yeah, that's a pretty important distinction and a marked difference from how it used to be, as I said. But it does produce an environment which is obviously potentially exploitable by the financial services companies and open to abuse by the officials as well. If these contacts are going on behind closed doors, it is open to abuse. Well, you've hit on a couple of really important points, actually. The first one is exactly, yes, it's evolved and changed over time. And one of the things for me about doing the story was to have an opportunity to look at how it has evolved. Because, again, I'm someone who's been going to Europe when it was open to press and then trying to go to Europe ever since it became closed to press, which was something that happened in stages in the period after 2008. And so actually having a chance to look properly at how it's evolved was very interesting. And you can see a trend where Eurofee has grown, the membership's grown, the events have grown in size, but press access has gradually been curtailed to a point now where there is no media access at all. So that's one interesting point, just that trajectory. And the other one is, yes, it creates this really curious environment where you have so many officials, so many financial sector lobbyists in an environment where they're encouraged to have one-on-one -on -one meetings. So, for example, if you're a Eurofee sponsor, so a financial services firm that takes one of these levels of sponsorship of conferences, one of the benefits you get is a private meeting room to help you organize your meetings with EU officials. So you start to look at it and think, well, at one level, this looks like an official EU event. It's got so much EU presence there. But on the other level, it's something quite different, where it's a very prized lobbying opportunity for industry. And so what we wanted to do was a story which really just puts that into the cold light of day, that just shows clearly what Eurofee actually is and how it's organised. It does seem to come quite close to the whole cash for access scandals that besmirched the UK Parliament back in the day. Thanks so much for highlighting it, Jim. It's a really interesting topic. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Nick here in the studio, our guest Dominic Lindley from the New City Agenda, and also to Jim and Laura for joining us from Brussels and New York, respectively. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.